If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello, and welcome to History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Russell Shorto. Russell is the author of seven books of narrative history, including the international bestseller, The Island at the Centre of the World, about Manhattan. He's the director of the New Amsterdam Project at the New York Historical Society and a contributing writer at the New York Times magazine. Russell is also the author of Amsterdam, a history of the world's most liberal city, published in the UK by Little Brown and in the US by Vintage. Internationally famous as a centre for trade, art and various pleasures of the flesh, this city of canals has a wealth of stories less well known to casual visitors. With his in-depth knowledge, Russell is the perfect guide to provide a fresh perspective on Amsterdam's varied past. Together we'll explore its growth on reclaimed marshlands, its medieval mercantile pomp, the golden age of international trade and the downs and ups of the past century, as well as the attractions of the modern city. We'll also meet some of the people who helped shape Amsterdam and discover a few more offbeat places to visit for insights into its heritage. So, Russell, welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Um, Perhaps you could start by telling us just a very little bit about your connection to Amsterdam and why you find the city so fascinating. 
I came to Amsterdam by way of New York. I, going back many years ago, I was living in New York, and I've learned about myself as a writer that I am interested in origins, origin stories. And so I got interested in how New York began. New York was settled originally by the Dutch. It was New Amsterdam. So I wrote a book about that. And then eventually I went back further still and ended up writing, as you said, this a history of the city of Amsterdam. And I end up, ended up living there about six years. I was director of the American Culture Center there, which is called the John Adams Institute. And not long after I got there, it occurred to me that history of the city with a focus on liberalism, what that means, of course, it's a, it's a big word that means uh, many different things, would be an attractive topic for me. You talked about your, your connection with Manhattan and Amsterdam, both cities that, that lie on the water and are shaped by that relationship. Can you set the scene a little by explaining just a tiny bit about the geography of Amsterdam, where the city was established and how it fits within the context of Holland and the Netherlands as a whole? Yeah, well, the Netherlands is, a, I mean, by rights, people shouldn't be living there, right? It's a, it's a, a very inhospitable geography. It's a place where several European rivers drain to the sea. And so it was settled much later than most of the rest of Europe. So you have, in the case of Amsterdam, you have the Amstel River draining into this wide bay, which is called the I. The Dutch language has a vowel that English doesn't have, which is written as I-J, both capital, and it's pronounced I. And that also happens to be the name of this body of water. So it was on that bay which connects to the North Sea, and that gave Amsterdam a unique position vis-a-vis the German cities of the Hanseatic League, and, and, and it, it was in a good position to be trading with Northern Europe. So we've got this place which is built basically on swamp and on the edge of the North Sea. When was it first settled in any kind of permanent sense, and how did the, the settlement develop on, on that part of the land? Well, in the Netherlands, I mean, it's a fascinating story, and I think the, the whole key to the Dutch goes back to water. The Dutch society today, trying to understand them. So people from other parts of Europe began settling there in the Middle Ages, around 1000, 1100 AD, 1200 AD. And when they first went there, they built their homes and farms on a, near a river. And then the next spring, the river flooded and their houses flooded and their lands flooded. And uh, some of them presumably said enough of this and they moved away. But the others who stayed started this incredible backbreaking work of building dams and dikes to control the water. So in the case of Amsterdam, you have the Amstel River flowing to the sea. They built up dikes along both sides of it to protect the land. Then the land on the other side, they dug trenches in because it's very marshy land. They dug trenches to drain the water out of the land so they could farm it. And this is the essence of the Dutch system. Then the Amstel River, they built a dam in the middle of it, and that's how the city gets its name. It was originally Amstel Dam. They built a dam, and then from that dam, they were able to create canals. And again, it was about controlling the water and making it not only protecting yourself from it, but making it usable because they could then, you know, with boats, get around the city and, and move goods around and so on. 
So we have a community which is uh, it's created farmland for itself by creating dikes and channels and presumably some fishing there. How did it develop into a, a more substantial settlement over those centuries, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries? Yeah, the Middle Ages, Amsterdam is a very Catholic city. It's a city of trade and of fishing. Everybody in Northern Europe fished the North Sea for herring. And the, I guess the, the main standout event of Amsterdam in the Middle Ages is the so-called miracle of Amsterdam. And the miracle, this is 1345, and the story is that an old man was dying, and the priest was called in, and they gave him communion, and he swallowed the host, and then he vomited it up. And they didn't know what to do with this because it was holy. You can't just throw it away. So they threw it on the fire, and lo, it didn't burn. Now, you know, to us, we would say, well, okay, back then, this was a miracle. And it was such, uh, it became so renowned that Amsterdam became a place of pilgrimage for people from all over Europe. And that then became its claim to fame. And still to this day, right in the center of Amsterdam, in the main cheesy, gritty shopping area, there's a little street called the Heiligeweg, the Holy Way, which was the, the route that pilgrims took into the city center. And what sort of size of city are we talking at this time in the mid-14th century? Oh, well, at that time, it's just in the thousands. Our sense of numbers and population in the Middle Ages, and then as you move forward a few centuries, I mean, we really have to turn down the dial to appreciate what cities were in Europe. So at this point, we've got a city, it's become a pilgrim destination, it's a fishing port, it's got some farming around it. What helps it move into the big time over the next couple of centuries, so the the late Middle Ages into the early modern period? I guess the defining event for the Netherlands is the Eighty Years' War. The Dutch had built up a trade, and their trade, I think, again, came out of their relationship to the water, not only because the water was there for, for shipping, but it developed a certain mentality most of the rest of Europe was feudal at the time. So you had, and the, the economics of feudalism was you had a manor, which was an estate with a, a, a castle, a, a great house on it, and you had a, an overlord who saw, uh, oversaw all of this. And there were lots of peasants and all kinds of other people working there under this lord. So it was a very fixed system for centuries. That meant that wherever you were born into in this system, that's what your children would be born into and their children. And it was a stable system. It went on for centuries. The Dutch, once they began, not only in Amsterdam, but in other cities, to dam rivers and so on, they created land. They reclaimed land from the sea. About half of the land there now is man-made. And when they did this, it wasn't owned by a nobleman. It was theirs. So the communities divided it up, and people then used it. They, they began growing crops. They grew flowers, eventually tulips. They had cows that they pastured. They developed a dairy industry. So everybody kind of became an entrepreneur. And what that did, what that meant was that everyone realized that they could possibly make life better for their children than it had been for them. So it's not that fixed system that held sway in much of the rest of Europe. So that turns them into a nation of opportunity seekers. So they start then expanding. This is in the 1400s and the 1500s, and they're looking outward for business opportunities. And they're getting rich, and other Europeans are starting to resent them. Spain now is the great power in Europe at this time, 
And the Spanish Empire decides after the Reformation that it is going to corral the Dutch because they had uh, gone wholesale for Calvinism, for Protestantism. And so the Spanish send in armies and they invade first in what was the southern Netherlands. And one of the big events for the city of Amsterdam was the when the city of Antwerp to the south fell to the Spanish, there was this great brain drain because Antwerp had been a center of banking and trade. And a lot of these people emigrated to Amsterdam. And so that really jump-started this process that had already been underway. And it sort of solidified what was going on in many parts of the Low Countries. It solidified Amsterdam into the center of that. By that point, Amsterdam was becoming very wealthy because of trade, as you say, across the North Sea, across the Baltic, rivaling the old Hanseatic League ports around the Baltic. And the city itself, as you say, was being developed in terms of the infrastructure, the canals, the warehouses, and so on. So obviously the 80 Years' War after Spain had invaded was going to have an impact on that. How did the Netherlands, that region, and Amsterdam specifically, cope with that war, and how did it emerge from it? It's a remarkable thing when you think about the so-called Golden Age, uh, the Dutch Golden Age, that throughout most of that period, they were fighting a war of independence against Spain. So this this tiny country, and it had been just independent provinces. You know, Holland, it's it's a confusing uh, nomenclature. People use the term Holland as synonymous with the Netherlands. Holland was actually one of the provinces, and now it's North Holland and South Holland. So you had this mix of different provinces, each with their own regional identity. But in the process of fighting this war, that brought them together, and it gave them a sense of of being one nation. At the same time, this process that I'm talking about, where the whole people, this whole culture is becoming this economic powerhouse is happening. And that all, I think, culminates in 1602 with the development of the East India Company, which is the first modern corporation, the first multinational. It was the largest company in the history of the world up to that point. And it really defined or it changed the definition of what company could be. Before that, you had companies in Europe, but a company typically was a group of people put their money together to back a venture, say a voyage. The ships went out, maybe they got the goods, they brought them back, everybody divided the spoils, the company was done. The big innovation with the East India Company was it was going to stick around. So after this first big voyage to the East Indies, to Asia, the ships come back laden with spices and all these things, and they continue. And so they said, not only are we going to continue, but we're going to allow everyone really to be a part of it. So we're going to issue what we call shares of stock. Anybody can buy one and you can be part of this great economic venture of the time. And people of all walks of society did so. And not only that, but then since they had these shares of stock, they themselves were tradable. So you have a stock exchange. And so today, if you're in Amsterdam, the eye, the body of water, is it's kind of inconveniently central station. The train station now blocks the city from the eye. But if you get past central station from the water, you cross this kind of busy highway area. That's actually a bridge. And that was the bridge that took you into the city. And right there was the first stock exchange. The life of the city was in the harbor, was on the ships. And as soon as you came ashore, you could buy and sell shares of stock and participate in this great adventure that the whole city was taking part in. 
So we've got a city which is booming at this point from, as you say, the, the 16th century age of discovery in the 17th century growing trade, the East India Company bringing spices back from the East Indies. So it's it's becoming very wealthy. How can we see that today in terms of the structure of the city, the buildings and other urban development? Yeah, when, when people think about Amsterdam and if you visit Amsterdam as a tourist, probably you're in the canal zone. So if you look at a map of Amsterdam, it's sort of a concentric circle of canals. In the center of it is a kind of oblong shape. That was the medieval city clustered around the river, the Amstel River, and these initial canals that they created that followed the course of the river. That was the medieval city. After the Dutch East India Company changes the whole game and this uh, money is just flooding in, then they laid out uh, this vast feat of urban planning. They laid out what is the classic 17th century city that we see today. And that is these the series of canals, the Herrengracht, or the Gentleman's Canal, the Kaisersgracht, the King's Canal, and the Prinzengracht, the Prince's Canal, that wrapped around the medieval city. Again, throughout this period, throughout the Golden Age, the 1600s, I, I like to think that if you were walking through Amsterdam, it would have been a, a giant construction site because thousands of houses, the canals themselves, hundreds and hundreds of bridges were being constructed, obviously just on, on manual labor and in a remarkably short time. So the city itself, the city that we see is a product of that time. And those individual canal houses, the Amsterdam Canal House is a fascinating thing in its own right because it represented this enormous power of these individuals who did this, this trading and so on. So the canal house, most of them have at the top what's called a hoist beam, a beam that sticks out with a hook on it. And the house is built right on the canal. And the idea was you could have been a merchant who took part in voyages, sending ships out to far-flung places to get goods, bringing them back into the eye. You could have stepped from that ship to a smaller vessel with your goods and then traveled through the canals right up to your doorstep. And then via the hoist beam and with a pulley, the, typically people stored their goods in their attics. So you could have traveled from, you know, halfway around the world right to your doorstep and loaded goods into your own attic, you know, without even setting foot on, on dry land. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's amazing. And of course, a lot of those canal houses are still visible today. When you walk along the canals, you can see these very tall, slender looking houses with, as you say, the same sort of structure. People who make money from trade like to spend money. And a lot of that money can go on culture, religious buildings and so forth. How did that impact the social and cultural aspects of life in Amsterdam around that time? It's most obvious in Dutch art of the period, you know, the art of Rembrandt and Vermeer and uh, all of their followers and everybody we associate with that. In one sense, it was a turn away from religious to secular. Now, the, the same artists did lots of religious paintings, but in the old days, the clients were churches, so the paintings were religious, or else they were wealthy people who portrayed themselves, you know, at prayer. But you have this real secular turn, which speaks to this wealth, this, this feeling of living here in, the, in this world is, is what it's about. And it's, I'm comfortable enough that I want to explore th- this world and I want to explore the ordinary. This same, you know, again, going all the way back to the water and, and using the water to empower yourself, I think sets off a new sense of people Uh, an awareness people have of themselves as individuals. Before that, I think in Europe, a sense of oneness, of individuality, who I am was connected to who I was, who I am as as a parent, as a child, as a member of a guild, a member of a church. You're now starting to see people seeing themselves as individuals. And so take Rembrandt. Rembrandt became famous as a portrait painter. And there were lots of his contemporaries who painted portraits. It was this frenzy. The Dutch just wanted to see themselves. And Rembrandt, I think, was the reason he's so revered is a lot of these people could paint a really good likeness, like what you look like. But Rembrandt seemed to go one better. You know, he seemed to be able to portray who you were inside. And I think that is what fascinated and excited people. So these, you know, wealthy merchants would have commissioned Rembrandt to paint a portrait of of the man himself and his wife. And they'd take them home and hang them up and and presumably just stare at them, you know, because uh, it was this real fascination with the self. Uh, So that's just in art. You have similar things in literature. About half of all books published in the entire world in the 17th century were published in the Dutch provinces. I mean, it's a remarkable statistic. And the interesting thing about books is that it's an industry, it's a product, But a book is a product that is connected to ideas. So if you're the center of publishing, you're also the first people to learn about the newest ideas. So again, you're looking for opportunities in the development of science, of scientific equipment, lens grinding, uh, looking into the night sky. So all of these things kind of fed from one another. So you've painted a picture here of a city of of people who have a very independent spirit who've made wealth for themselves by developing their city and developing trade. This kind of seems like an unstoppable force, really. So what happened to Amsterdam? Why isn't Amsterdam now the biggest city and wealthiest city in the world? What happened over the next couple of centuries? The year 1672, the Dutch called the Rampiar, the disaster year. 
enemies in Europe kind of ganged up on it and attacked from both sides. There were these large-scale dam projects that created all this new land that the wealth was built on. They, among other things, they tore down the, the dams and flooded the country. So it never truly recovered from that. I also think, I mean, there are, there are differences comparing uh, the Dutch to the English. The Dutch and the English empires, those two nations were, were kind of like sibling rivals. You know, they were really interested in one another. They were both progressing, if you want to call it progress, along similar trajectories. The Dutch were ahead by a few decades, ahead of the English. But the Dutch, as they developed their overseas empire, its method was, we'll set up a a trading post, which is also a military post in case we need to fight the locals, get the goods and bring them back home. You know, it was this kind of little bit of a hoarding mentality, whereas the English set up cities that became part of this empire, which is obviously one reason that English is so wide-spoken and and Dutch is not. So I think the British Empire was really more built to last than the Dutch was. So if you like, the Dutch were ganged up on, their power base was fractured. What happened over the next couple of centuries in, in Amsterdam? How did it progress? How did it recover from that? I mean, it certainly did progress and it did recover. The Dutch have always had this kind of a low-key sensibility. You know, I'm obviously American and Americans are the opposite. They want to, you know, they do anything and then they want to brag about it. The Dutch are very quiet about it. I think the Dutch are still the second largest investor in the United States. You would not think that such a tiny country was. The Dutch are the biggest exporter of agriculture goods around the world in this tiny little corner of Europe. They don't brag too much about that. So they always maintained a presence. One thing they did very skillfully was make themselves into a center of diplomacy and negotiation. The Hague became a big center of many, many European treaties were and still are uh, negotiated there. Throughout the course of the 20th century, the Netherlands goes through what much of the world did. And as you come into the Second World War, their position was particularly fraught because they were right next to Germany. They, the Germans saw them as Aryan brothers, so to speak. So they invaded, but it, it was kind of a soft invasion. And the Dutch have a difficult time dealing with the fact that the NSB, the, the Dutch Nazi party, integrated itself very quickly into society and took over much of Dutch society during the war in the Nazi period. The Dutch are proud of the resistance movement, and it is a fascinating story. At the same time, more Dutch Jews were killed than I believe any other European nation. There were a lot of reasons for that. One reason is that the Dutch, like the Germans, are, you know, they value order and they created the The Dutch Nazi Party and the Germans together created a very orderly system for processing society and for, frankly, processing Jews. So in the past 10 or 20 years, the Dutch have really tried to come to terms with this because before then, I think they they saw themselves as, you know, they looked at at the resistance as this heroic undertaking, which, of course, it was as well. So like so much of Europe, the Netherlands and Amsterdam emerged from the Second World War and there was a period of reconstruction. What of the modern city can we see from that period today? Well, I mean, the city centre is still the 17th century. I mean, you're walking down the canals, it's still the 17th century. Now, what happened in the 20th and 21st centuries is succeeding rings were built around that. So Amsterdam keeps expanding outward toward 
Schiphol Airport. And there, uh, obviously, I mean, it's uh, very visible in the skyline. There's these super modern uh, high rises, and that's a distinctly different city from the medieval one. I think a, a really fascinating part of the story of Amsterdam is the shift from the Second World War, that era, into the 60s. Because, you know, the story of Amsterdam, as I portrayed it in my book, is a story of liberalism, different kinds of liberalism. You had this fight against totalitarianism during the war, which the city did and did not participate in. And one of the leaders of that was, there were two brothers, a man named Walraven van Hall and his brother, Gijs van Hall. And they were bankers who found a way that the Nazis and the Nazi party in the Netherlands had taken control of the banking system of the Dutch National Bank. They found a way to basically steal from the Dutch National Bank and funnel those proceeds to people who needed it, to people who were in hiding, to people who were who had fled the country. So they were heroes. Walraven was captured right at the end of the war and assassinated. His brother, Gijs, goes on to have this remarkable career that blends then into the 60s. So he's this war hero who in the 60s becomes the mayor of Amsterdam. And you would, that's only 20 years later. And you'd think, okay, well, that's a natural person to be this hero. But what's gone on? He's this, and if you look at pictures of him, he's this, you know, typical middle-aged white male in his suit and all that, who's, you know, one of the establishment figures. But what has happened in society is this other kind of liberalism has taken over. You know, it, Amsterdam a few years before most other places, becomes a center of counterculture and hippies and anti-war. And we have to have a revolution against the establishment, which is keeping the, the people down. So suddenly he becomes this, you know, to this new gener generation, this man becomes this epitome of everything that's wrong. And it must have been completely bewildering for people like him and his generation. But then you're in that period, it's the 60s, and Amsterdam becomes this focal point for thinking and for expression. And then, you know, I guess it, it kind of comes into everybody's consciousness when uh, John and Yoko go to the Amsterdam Hilton and, uh, and decide to have their bed in there. You know, it kind of brings it all, all to the fore. So that, that pretty much brings us up to date in terms of where we are with Amsterdam, a city of, of culture, of historic buildings, of, of counterculture, as you say, sometimes famous for the wrong things, sometimes famous for its, for its art and history. I'd like to ask you now, Russell, to share five places in Amsterdam that you think our listeners should visit, each of which reveals something about the city's past and to explain the historical significance of each. I had a hard time coming up with five. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, just to pick uh, maybe five or six or seven, obviously, uh, everybody should see the Night Watch in the Rijksmuseum. Rembrandt's iconic painting of this, you know, company of soldiers marching through the streets. But what I would do after that, you know, after you're in the Rijksmuseum looking at the painting, go to the Doolin Hotel, which is right on a bend in the Amstel River, right in the middle of the city because that was the site where the Night Watch was painted to be displayed. That was originally the hall of one of these scooters companies, these companies of uh, sort of citizen uh, soldiers who would march through the streets in the evening and keep order. Uh, so, you know, giving yourself a sense, not just of like this sort of disembodied object, but trying to put it into context, I think is a useful exercise. Second thing that came to mind is there is a little man-made island in the harbor called Prinsen Island, which 
If you walk onto it, you, you don't even notice that you're crossing a bridge onto an island because it's so integrated into the structure of the city. It was built, there were three islands there actually, that were man-made in the 17th century using, you know, the earth that they removed from the canals and so on. And what's nice about it is you're right there in the city, you just take a little stroll onto it, and yet it feels like you're on an island. I mean, somehow the noise level goes down, it's this quiet place, there's old architecture, there's houseboats, there's you know small craft uh, sailing by. So it gives you that sense of being in the city, but also really being, being outside of it too. Speaking of World War II and the Resistance, there is a wonderful little museum called the Resistance Museum, which is right across the street from the Amsterdam Zoo. And I always recommend people go there because it gives you, you know, they talk about the resistance movement and what a remarkable thing it was, but also against about the failures of resistance. And it's a very manageable place to visit. You know, you go an hour for an hour and you really uh, get this sense of things. Also, on the World War II era, I don't if it's possible to get into it, the Amsterdam City Archives is on the Weiselstraat and uh, it occupies this grand old kind of menacing looking building. During the war, one branch of the German military took over this menacing looking building and made it their headquarters. And if you are able to get into the office of the director of the city archives, there's a clock on the wall. I'm getting really specific here. There's a clock on the wall. And apparently the story goes that the German uh, officers were saying to the people there, and uh, this was bank at the time, you must be out by one o'clock. And they were kind of dithering and stalling or something like that. So this officer takes his pistol and shoots a, a bullet at the 12 and a bullet at the one. And that clock is still there with those bullet holes. So that's a really remarkable you know, piece of living history. I don't know how many I did there, but the, the West India house which is right on the Brouwerskracht, is the place from which the West India Company headquartered itself in Amsterdam. And it's special to me because when I was director of the John Adams Institute, our offices were inside that building. But more broadly, what's interesting is that is the place from which they said, okay, let's plan this colony in the New World in North America uh, based on this island called Manhattan. So that building is essentially where New York or the idea of New York was born. I think that's five. Um, okay. You've done well to to keep it to five. Obviously, there are so many other places we could talk about. People will undoubtedly want to visit the Anne Frank Museum and uh, of course. perhaps the Big Enhoff and, and so on. Finally, Russell, before you go, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Amsterdam? Food has become much better than it was a few years ago. It's very international, very uh, lively food scene. For a long time, Indonesian food was the the go-to, and it's still really great. What I would suggest is get Indonesian food in Amsterdam. There's there's some really fine Indonesian restaurants, but I think the best Indonesian food is from a takeout, from what they call them tokos, and they're all over the city, and, you know, they have the already prepared food in the little bins and things. Some of the best meals I've gotten in Amsterdam are from Indonesian tokos. Fantastic. So stop off for a, a migareng or a gadagado or something like that from exactly. one of those tourcase. That's wonderful. That was Russell Shorto. His book, Amsterdam, A History of the World's Most Liberal City, is available now, published in the UK by Little Brown and in the US by Vintage. Thanks, Russell, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman 